G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly radio show. Now look, if you're an investor with an attention span of more than a few minutes, one of the more baffling things about watching companies is when a new CEO comes into a company that you were told was going fine with a smooth succession following an applauded retirement of somebody. And then the new person says, we're going to have to restructure the place entirely. Time to start again. Everything the previous regime did was wrong. The new strategy starts now. And that's what's happened at ANZ. Mike Smith spent eight years extolling the virtues of his Asian growth plan. Last year, Smith retired with decorations and plaudits, and Chief Financial Officer Shane Elliott smoothly moved into the top job. Right, he said, we're getting out of Asia. That's no good anymore. So naturally, I started my interview with Shane by asking him what's going on and what's his strategy. Yes, because the reasons that we've been selling non-core assets, some of which are in Asia, not all of them, is because they're non-core. And we want to focus, our strategy is really built on the idea of finding a few things where we can win that we can do exceptionally well and just focus on executing those the best that we can and jettison the rest. What does the rest involve? Well, Give we, us a what, sense what, of what, yeah. what you're getting rid of and what you're focusing on. It's probably easy to think about what we want to do well. And there's essentially three areas. One is we want to be the best bank in Australia and New Zealand for people who want to buy and own a home. So that doesn't mean that people have a mortgage, but people who want to buy and own a home. So people saving for a home, people who own a home, etc. So we want to do that incredibly well. We want to be the best bank for people who want to start, run and grow a small business. And we want to be the best bank for people who move goods and money around the region. So if you're in the business of trade or capital flow in Asia Pacific, we want to be the best bank for you. So Asia is still really important in that context. But pretty much everything else, we will look at alternative ways. Either we won't do it or we will look for partnering in terms of servicing our customers. And so we've said, for example, all of the partnership stakes we have across Asia, and there's, there, was a, there was half a dozen of them, they no longer really, we're no longer the best uh, uh, people to own those. We've made our intentions clear about our, the manufacturing of wealth products in Australia, that we don't think we're the right people to own that. We want to we provide them to customers, but we want to partner with somebody. And there'll be other businesses that fit into that category. How much did Mike Smith's Asian strategy cost the bank? Do you have a number? No. I mean, there was an Asian strategy predates Mike Smith. Uh, in fact, ANZ has always been the most outward-looking bank in Australia. We've, we've had the biggest global footprint for a long time, and we, continue, we will in the future. The expansion into Asia was a good idea as long as we're following our customers. But, you know, the world changes and the environment changes and the regulatory environment changes, and we have to adapt our strategy to deal with those changes, and that's what we're doing now. Yeah, but it's the second time you've got out of Asia. I remember when ANZ sold Grindley's, and then, yeah. you know, and then Mike Smith says, no, actually, we're going to go back into Asia, and everyone went, oh, geez, you've already done that, and now you're getting out again. That's pretty. Well, we're not getting out again. We're just refining what we do there. We're still going to be there. We're going to have thousands of people in Asia. We've got billions of dollars of balance sheet there. We're just saying what we're going to do in Asia is going to be really targeted and focused, and it's going to be focused on trade and capital flow. So big end of town, you know, we bank extraordinarily good customers in Asia. Some of them are from Australia and New Zealand. Some are from the US and Europe. But we're very focused about what we can do. It is a tough business, uh, institutional banking. And so when you get into it and we're in it, 
you have to choose what you're doing and make sure you're really, really on your game. And it's not the kind of business where you can just have a go at things. And so we've said, we've figured out where we're going to win. We know which customers, we know what services, and Asia is an important part of that, but it's going to be much more focused than it was in the past. I suppose the thing about Mike Smith's approach to Asia was that it was at least it was a growth story. It enabled the bank to talk about growth and to present a growth strategy. And I wonder whether yes. it's going to be difficult for you to, in a sense, replace that in the current environment. Well, I think the important thing about growth is it needs to be profitable growth and a growth that generates returns to shareholders. And as I said, Asia is still going to be important. It is still going to be a growth story but it's going to be about profitable growth. And any strategy that can must evolve with changing customer needs, changing competitive landscape, and the changing regulatory environment. We are a growth story, and ANZ uh, is committed to that, but it's about profitable growth. Moving on to the housing market, do you think it's tipping over now? No, I don't, actually. I think that the underlying dynamics that have made housing pricing strong in Australia and New Zealand for that matter are still there. I think that the regulators are right to seek a slowdown uh, there and there are some you know there are some concerning uh, elements and some you know consequences of that and while for example putting speed limits on investor lending or interest only are going to have an impact I don't know they change the fundamental drivers which is to do with demographics and immigration and infrastructure and, and the tax system, those are things that are going to be, I think, will underpin the market for some period of time. Are you imposing your own limitations and your own speed limits that aren't regulatory driven? Yes, we have to run our business based on the risks that we see. So we're always cautious about where we're lending. So we're not you know, overly concentrated in any particular state or town or, or, or county. We have to look at our exposures in terms of the kind of security we get in terms of people who have, you know, bigger deposits rather than smaller, et cetera. So, yes, we do have our own limits, and that's always been the case and will continue to be so. In particular, I'm wondering what your approach at the moment is to interest-only loans. Well, interest-only loans is a complex area because they're not all the same. I think there's a little bit of a myth uh, in the marketplace that, you know, all interest-only loans are somehow ways that people people use interest-only loans to borrow more. That's sort of the narrative. Well, that's not necessarily true. In fact, when we assess you, if you walk into ANZ and want to talk about a, a mortgage, we assess your ability to pay as if it's a principal and interest loan. And if you can afford that, then perhaps we can have a discussion about whether an interest-only loan is a better option for you. We assess you on your ability to pay principal and interest. The other thing that we've known is there's a good reason why some people are interest-only, particularly if you're an investor, because it's around the deductibility of interest and people want to do that. So not all interest-only loans are the same and, and certainly not all of them are bad. So we, we, we have to be really thoughtful about applying rules to that category. When you assess people's ability to pay, what interest rate do you use? We use today's interest rate and then the higher of either today's rate plus two and a quarter percent or seven and a quarter percent, whichever is higher. And that that was something we were doing anyway. And now APRA has actually essentially regulated that. So we build in quite a big buffer, and we assume that that interest rate happens, you know, immediately. And so there's a, there is absolutely a buffer built in to, people, to, to interest rates when all of the banks assess somebody's ability to repay. What do you make of the Reserve Bank statement that 30% of borrowers don't have a buffer? 
it's a very fair observation. I think the data is a bit wobbly on this, but the observation there is less to do with banks assessing an interest rate buffer, but obviously the bit that we don't know, and it's hard for us to see, is people's disposable income. And so what that means is, you know, today when you are, when we lend you the money, you may have sufficient buffers, but what if you're, you lose your job or your partner loses their job or maybe you're doing less hours or, or maybe your expenses are growing. Maybe it's, you know, whatever your household budget is under pressure. Those are the sorts of things that really diminish households' buffer and they're not always visible to a bank because, you know, we don't necessarily see those uh, pressures. When you took over the bank, you talked about a broad restructuring, much more than simply withdrawing or or reducing your exposure to Asia. Uh, How's that restructuring going? How far into that process are you now? So we're talking about a rebalancing of our business to make it a simpler bank and a business that is lower risk and more sustainable. And I'm really, we've made, I think, really strong progress. And essentially what that is is between those businesses I mentioned the people who want to buy and own a home and, and or start and run a small business, we would like that business to be about 60 to 65% of the bank and the balance to be the institutional bank, including Asia, which which is really about trade and capital flow. We're not quite at those levels yet, but we're getting closer. So the rebalancing is, is doing well. What we were really pleased to report yesterday is that the early benefits are beginning to emerge. We had a substantial increase in our return on equity. That is the first time we've been able to report that in seven years. We strengthened our capital base above 10% for the first time in modern history, and we've now moved to be what we is probably the strongest uh, capitalised bank in Australia. And so we've we've really started to get those benefits, and we're really pleased with the momentum. We're not done yet, though, Alan. We've still got work to do. I don't know. We are somewhere probably in the middle of the transformation, with still a lot of a uh, lot of hard work to do. Do you think you've got some upside still on return on equity? Yes. And that upside will come from a couple of things. One, the ongoing rebalancing that I talked about. Uh, that, that helps because the return on equity in the retail and commercial businesses is, is much higher than institutional. So the more we skew our business in that direction, we just naturally will get an uplift. And two, the very good work that ANZ and the team have done on costs. I mean, we have now had the total cost of running the bank come down on two consecutive halves. That's also making us more profitable and so that's also contributing to return uh, the return on equity. And then finally, it's our loss rates. You know, we as we de-risk the bank, which is part of our strategy, the amount of money we're losing in credit provisions comes down. That's also improving the profitability and therefore the return. So, you know, we've that is exactly what our strategy is designed to deliver. Great outcomes for customers, but with a fair return on equity, which is certainly higher than where we are today. housing, the Reserve Bank left rates on hold this week as entirely expected because they're worried about housing. I asked Gareth Aird of CBA if he learned anything from the statement. We didn't learn a lot. I think it was quite an easy decision for them this month. We had a really strong employment report between the last meeting and this meeting. Uh, A little bit questionable just because of how strong it actually was, Uh, but that meant that uh, the Reserve Bank could take some comfort that the labour market's ticking along okay. We've also now got inflation, headline inflation, up within the Reserve Bank's target band. So I think that the no change decision was was a pretty easy one. And the Reserve Bank governor really just echoed uh, recent sentiments around concerns for the level of household debt as a share of income is 
probably the main reason why rates aren't going any lower. And I think well, over the labour market ticks, ticks along okay, uh, there's no pressure uh, coming through on the governor to ease policy. They were a bit negative about wages growth, weren't they? I mean, saying that wages growth remains slow and it's likely to remain the case for a while yet. And I guess this kind of uh, reinforces the, the idea that they're basically stuck between a weak labour market, weak wages and really strong house prices still. Yeah, that's right. Um, and wages growth has, has surprised them and has surprised a lot of commentators to the downside. So we've seen the unemployment rate come down a little bit from where it was two years ago. Uh, that historically would normally put some upward pressure on, on wages. But um, just given how much slack there is in the labour market, particularly in terms of the number of people who are underemployed, uh, we're not getting anything in the way of wages inflation coming through. And I don't think it surprised you, Gareth. You've been writing a lot about underemployment and the wages, the labour market slack for quite a while. You've been all over it. Yeah, well, that's right. I've sort of been speaking about this issue for a few years now to say that it's no good now just looking at the unemployment rate to gauge the pulse of where wages growth is likely to go. You've got to look at a, a broader measure of spare capacity in the labour market, which includes underemployment, because the gap between underemployment and unemployment has actually been rising. So while the unemployment rates come down, the percentage of people who are actually looking for additional work has been rising. So there's a lot of the Australian workforce out there uh, who are looking for uh, work. And whenever that happens, it's hard to, uh, to, to generate much in the way of wage, wage inflation. So given that there's this sort of tension, as it were, between the labour market and the housing market, which do you think will break first? Do you think we're likely to see a, a tipping over of the housing market first or an improvement in the labour market? I think house price growth will slow first. I think it has to. What has supported um, house price growth, amongst other things, has been interest rates coming down. And basically when rates come down for a given level of income, uh, households can borrow more money. But I think we're at the bottom of the interest rate cycle and given there's no more stimulus then to come through by interest rates going lower, in fact, um, some, some, some of the uh, segments like their loans to investors have actually risen a little bit on the interest rate there, uh, then I think dwelling price growth will slow. So I think while wages growth probably won't pick up for a while, uh, dwelling price growth will, will slow. So that, I would have thought, is a bit of a relief in a way because of the amount of household debt that we've got in Australia because... If wages, if house prices continue to rise, they might be forced to put up interest rates at some point, and that would be quite dangerous. It's been a concern for the Reserve Bank more recently, I think since Governor Lowe's come in at, at the top job, uh, they've aired those concerns, and they relate to uh, financial stability and just the level of household debt as a share of income out there. And of course, when income's growing slowly and wages are growing slowly, then it doesn't take too much in the way of growth in debt for that, for that ratio to continue to rise. So I think any slowdown in dwelling price growth is absolutely welcome. I still very much doubt that the Reserve Bank would, would use its policy lever to raise interest rates just to try and cool the housing market. There's other avenues available, and we've seen more recently the, um, the additional measures announced by APRA to slow lending growth to interest, the investor segment, particularly interest only, come in. And I think that helps the Reserve Bank to, uh, it takes the pressure off the Reserve Bank to, to raise interest rates just to cool the housing market. In fact, you had a graph in your latest update showing um, what you called OIS cash rate pricing, which I guess is the RBA futures, which indicates that basically uh, nothing or a 50% chance of a rate hike in 18 months' time. Do you go along with that? I mean, we're talking about sort of nothing for 12 months and then maybe a 50% chance of a rate hike 
sometime next year? Yeah, it's quite incredible, really. The, the market's effectively pricing in no change in interest rates for the best part of 18 months, and that's been our view for a while. I think the Reserve Bank's really caught between a rock and a hard price. They don't want to take interest rates any lower, uh, just given what's happened with the housing market and just how responsive uh, the household sector here has been to taking on more debt as rates go down. So that kind of rules out further policy easing. And the other side of the equation is that because wages growth is so weak and there's plenty of spare capacity in the economy, there's no pressure at all coming through on them to lift rates. And so, you know, as long as the labour market, I think, ticks along okay, then then the Reserve Bank will probably sit on the sidelines for the rest of the year and, and well into 2018. Next week is Budget Week and I'm gearing up for the lock-up and the annual exam of trying to figure out what it all means and then saying something intelligent about it, which isn't always easy. This year we know a few things already, including the fact, as the Treasurer told us last week, that housing affordability will be in it, but it won't be the centrepiece, because he never said that, even though he was quoted as saying that. We also know that he's going to distinguish between good and bad debt, the latter not being what the banks call bad debt, which is debt that's not repaid, but rather money that's been borrowed to pay current expenditures like salaries and pensions. So I thought I should check in with someone who knows about these things, Robert Carling of the Centre for Independent Studies and a former Treasury official. I started by asking him whether it's a good idea. Well, I think it's useful to make the distinction and, in fact, it's already there in the budget papers for anybody who wants to delve deep enough into the budget papers, but apparently they're going to move it forward and highlight it this time. And I think uh, he seems to have two propositions. One is that the recurrent budget should normally be in balance or surplus, and I certainly wouldn't argue with that. Um, I'd agree with that. But the other part, I'm not sure about what he's saying about the capital component. Is he saying that all of that should be borrowed or what? We have to wait and see what he means. But I think, yes, look, uh, you can make a case for borrowing for some capital, large capital expenditure items um, in certain conditions, but you know, there are a lot of ifs and buts around it. It's not a, not a hard and fast rule by any means, and I think he's oversimplifying with his good debt and bad debt. Do you make the point that not all public investment is productive? Well, exactly, and you, we can always find white elephants that have um, been born by uh, government decision-making, So, uh, and a lot of politics comes into it, we know that cost-benefit analyses are not always used and not always followed, so you end up with politically inspired projects rather than um, economically inspired projects. So there, there, there should not be borrowing for all public investment. And in fact, um, uh, on the other side of things, I suppose there are times when it is a good idea to borrow for recurrent expenditure. Well, yes. I mean, in a deep recession and the revenue falls away, the automatic stabilisers of the budget kick in, you would expect to have a recurrent deficit in those circumstances, but you can't explain away the recurrent deficit we have now in those terms. No, in fact, the other point you make is that the starting point matters. I mean, if we were starting with a balanced budget, then it would be an entirely different matter to what we are starting with 
at the moment. Exactly. Yeah, we're starting with a large amount of debt, $500 billion of gen- Commonwealth general government gross debt now, I'm heading for $600 billion according to the Ford estimates, and the great bulk of that would be, in Scott Morrison's terminology, bad debt because it has, it has resulted from excessive recurrent deficits, especially in recent years when you know, they should have really been back to balance or surplus uh, much earlier than they're planning to. So uh, that's the starting point. And to add more debt on top of that um, is a pretty risky proposition, I think. And the rating agent, or at least one rating agency, has already said that um, you know, what he's talking about is not going to make any difference to the way they assess the credit rating. And bondholders, let's look at it from the perspective of bondholders, they're holding Australian government bonds which don't have tags attached to them saying good and bad, it's all the same debt. And the way the uh, accounting changes that Scott Morrison is talking about are not really going to change the way bondholders assess the, uh, the risks and rewards of holding or buying Australian government bonds. I suppose we have to wait and see what the budget actually does, but what seems to be what he's going to do is replace the fiscal balance with the net operating balance. Could you explain to us the distinction between those two things? Well, the net operating balance is its like a recurrent budget. Uh, the difference between revenue and um, operating expenses but it has a depreciation expense deduction from it, so it's not like a cash uh, recurrent budget. It's, uh, it's an accrual version with a deduction for depreciation of capital. It's a bit like what a company reports as net profit, really. And then the fiscal balance is arrived at simply by deducting from the net operating balance uh, capital expenditure net of depreciation. So uh, nearly always the net operating balance is better than the fiscal balance. And last year in the Commonwealth accounts, it was about $3.5 billion better. For the states, the difference is bigger because they have more capital expenditure than the Commonwealth does. And the states, in fact, have been for years, they've been emphasising the net operating balance rather than the fiscal balance or the cash balance. I mean, one of the problems with the budget is that there are so many balances, nobody can actually get their head yeah. around it. There's your headline cash balance, yeah. your underlying cash balance, yeah. your fiscal balance, and, right. and your net operating balance. Yes. yes, there are four of them, yes. <laughs> so what should we watch? What should we look at? Well, the net operating balance and the fiscal balance, to me, are the most meaningful ones. But... Scott Morrison, in his speech last week, said they're still going to use the underlying, underlying cash balance as the key target. So when he talks about restoring the budget to balance or surplus by 2021, uh, um, apparently he's still going to be talking about the underlying cash result. That is one thing I don't think he can change to walk away from that commitment to achieve balance on that measure by 2021 would be a big blow to their credibility and it would 
really put the AAA rating at risk. So somehow, despite this new capital expenditure that he's talking about, they're going to have to still reach a balance or surplus in 2021 on the cash measure. Which everyone's going to continue to focus on anyway, I suppose. I mean, uh, that's what we've always looked at. That's what everyone's always looked at and will continue presumably to look at, even though they report the net net operating deficit beside it. Yes, I think that's right. And uh, if you go back a few years, they did, in fact, present the three things together, net operating balance, fiscal balance, underlying cash balance. They did that a few years ago, so just going back to that, really. And I guess they'll put more emphasis on the net operating balance in their discussion of the budget. Happy birthday, Adele. She can sing, she can write songs, she fills stadiums, and she turns 29 tomorrow. She's not over 30 yet. Goodness me. One of those people who make you feel like an underachiever. Thanks to my constant team and to ISM Studios for our music. Have a great weekend and I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning. Thank you.